can't remember any lines from Tron, so I can't do something with the movie boys. M- m- movie boy control Tron. <laughs> <laughs> This is the, oh, the Movie Boy yeah. Control Program? The Movie Boy Control Program. It, it's basically just a... Any, any TV remote will do. It's, it's not particularly special or important. And that that is why it is called the Movie Boy Control Program. This is the spin-off Doctors. I'm Jim Sterling. I'm joined by Conrad Zimmerman. Hello, Conrad. Hello, Jim. All right, then. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's interesting that you couldn't remember a line from Tron, despite having just watched it, because this is a, a memory uh, uh, problem, this movie, for me. Like, I remember Tron being pretty cool. And I've seen it not all that long ago. And, and after having watched it, had the experience of, wow, that's really kind of underwhelming. And then I yeah. still wanted to do it. And I think I still had some expectation that I might enjoy it. <laughs> it's not all that enjoyable. Like, like if, if I'm perfectly honest. Now, this is the first time I've sat down to watch Tron in, in an unfragmented way. Tron, it's one of those movies, especially for like a, a late millennial like myself. One of those movies that like you've seen, even if you haven't seen it. Like, we've all seen Tron. Um, it's been parroted enough and it's been on TV enough that you've like seen it in bits and pieces. Like I've seen it in shreds. So I've got a composite image of what Tron is. So this was my first time bothering to actually sit down and watch Tron. And for a number of reasons, it's just a bit dull. Yeah. I mean, it. Well, I think a, a large part of it, the fact that Tron is even something... Well, a big part of the reason Tron is remembered is because it had a really, really good video game associated yes. with it. Well, the original movie itself was a failure. It 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 failed, uh, and it was the video game that got popular and and like outgrossed the movie in terms of the money they were making. Yeah, which is is pretty funny, and it is it's it is a good little arcade game, and and it had. I mean, it's really just a collection of mini games, but that was at a time when that would have been really novel. Like, holy crap, there's like six different modes of gameplay in this. That's kind of strange uh, for a, a game of that time. So Midway did a, a really good product, and and that allowed it to see, succeed. And it is visually striking. It oh, has, absolutely. You know, it, it has a style that is very uniquely Tron, and by virtue of it being available for, you know, midday movies and it being a fairly family friendly thing it it has had a long time to sort of soak its way into the cultural firmament sure sure i mean when you think like like i i first remember tron when i was like four or five and and it was on tv and i don't know if i watched the whole thing then i may have done but burned in my memory are the the bikes, you mm-hmm. know, the, the the famous bikes from Tron, um, and and I think over time, like that's the stuff that gets remembered, like like all of the the iconic, not Ubisoft iconic, the real iconic visual stuff has been extracted for pop culture, and no one really thinks about the rest of it, which is just kind of not that enjoyable, and I think part of the reason for this is the same 
problems that the the prequel trilogy the star wars films had in terms of what you can do on screen with actors who don't know what's around them and can't really do anything too extravagant because there's all these special effects that have got to be laid on and around them so all of the action is done by the 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 computer graphics which for the time weren't all that great and the actors who are shot in black and white and have color put on them in post and are clearly in small spaces with cartoons behind them basically um they're just not doing anything they're not doing anything compelling they're they're pretending to throw cartoon discs at each other and pointing sticks at each other and there's no real action until the cartoons happen yeah i mean i think i think i might push back a little bit on the idea that the graphics weren't particularly good for 1982 oh uh, no no i didn't mean to imply they weren't good for the time yeah i mean cuz now I mean, they were incredible I mean, and but i mean and that's the, i think a big part of the issue with tron is that it has to lean so heavily on the spectacle Yes. You know, this uh, is definitely a movie that is designed to age poorly uh, on critic, you know, in terms of critical perspective, because everything really remarkable about it uh, comes through in the visuals. And the sad thing is, is that you can see a lot of potential in the world that it, it attempts to create. And... Uh, it never, it doesn't have enough substance or willingness to mine for the substance in yeah. in this world it's created. It's just very plot-driven point A, point B, raising well, a couple of implications and then never really satisfy, satisfactorily answering them. I, th- I think that's typified by the fact that, for me at least, the film gets way less interesting once it's taking place... Um, you know, entirely within the video game world. Right. The stuff outside it is more interesting. Like Dave Warner communicating with the the master control program through the table. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, him working with an AI. Um, all the stuff with Flynn in the real world and, and him getting dicked over and running that arcade and thing and stuff like that. I was more invested in that than I was in the sort of muted everybody not really doing very much and and letting the the computer bikes do it for them world of tron you know yeah yeah i think that's i think that's a really fair assessment um so i did you play tron the game as a kid i never did no no, no? i uh never had access to to that sort of stuff uh, as a kid as a, as a kid the best i could do was uh Arcades back back when we were in Norfolk. Well, sure. Over at the beach, um, but I, they never had a Tron machine. It not, was not one that I ever saw. It was one of those machines that, like it, it stood out in a room, uh, just because the game felt so different. Even even well after it, you know, years later, I used to go to uh, a couple of arcades in the Phoenix area in the uh, early nineties. On a fairly regular basis, and who the fuck is firing fireworks in the middle of? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> Nine forty in the morning, 
And if you're hearing noise behind me, it's because some jackass has decided now's the time for fucking fireworks display. <laughs> but um, sorry, carry on. No, I, I apologise if people hear fucking fireworks in the background, like it's New Year's cocking Eve. But it, it was it. It was a machine that visually stood out because it used that same visual language from the film. It was very, you know, uh, neon on black. And it, it had a control setup with a dial uh, that you would spin to rotate for shooting segments to aim. And then uh, a throttle stick for movement and a trigger. Mm-hmm. See, uh, I, know, I don't think I ever physically saw one in my life growing up. But then again, I was always just looking for the bomb jack machine because mm. no one, no one else ever played bomb jack. So oh. I, I always got on it, but I, I really bomb liked jack. bomb jack. I liked it, but but it wasn't. It no one really remembers or talks about bomb jack, but I still have a very soft spot for for, for bomb jack. And well, and then there was <sighs> an Atari Twenty Six Hundred game. Uh, based on Tron that I played a lot. There were a couple of them that they put out for the Atari. Uh, at one point, Atari was planning on making a game uh, based on Space Paranoids, which is the... There is an arcade machine of Space Paranoids. They did, they did wind up making that um, in, to promote... Disney World? Uh, yeah, I think it is now. I think they have them. Eight, eight yeah. Space Paranoid machines were made uh, for the promotion of Tron Legacy, uh, the follow-up film. Uh-huh. And uh, they had an event. Um, I remember I, I, I was really kind of fascinated with the viral marketing that they were trying to do for Tron because they they weren't subtle about it in the way that good viral marketing is. <laughs> which I thought was kind of, you know, just, just right there. But um, they they set up an arcade to resemble Flynn's arcade from the movie uh, at some event, I can't remember what event specifically it was, like uh, Comic Con or something like that. It and wasn't E3, but I remember doing E3 the year Tron Legacy was being like like coming out, and there was Tron shit everywhere. Disney had a great booth for it um, at E3, yeah, that like, year, and they had the model the, light cycle there, and yeah, mm-hmm. it was cool. Yeah, it was a uh, it was pretty trippy to see. Like I didn't really give a shit about Tron or anything, but it was cool. It, it looked cool. Yeah, it was definitely one of the coolest booths at the show that mm-hmm. year. I mean, they had a big, like, neon tunnel that you would stand in to play your demo. Uh, it was it was cool. Nice. Um, yeah, I never bothered with the demo. I just sort of walked through it on the way to things I, I was interested in. Right. Yeah, well, that was the other thing, too. It was a low-traffic area that you could pass through pretty easily. It was, yeah, it was a little <laughs> bomb jack area. <laughs> Did you know that the space paranoids that they got in Disney is there with the Tron machine and a couple of Fix-It Felix oh, uh, there you junior go. machines, and all the high scores have FLN on them for Flynn? Oh, I, no, I, I, I didn't know that about the Wreck-It Ralph machine, but I did know that the high score on the space paranoid machines was, was FLN. Uh, yeah, according to Amazon X-Ray, all of them were FLN. That's... So that's... Well, I mean, Flynn's the greatest. That's the thing. 
That's his, there you go. his whole deal. Now, um, but Atari was going to make a Space Paranoids for the Atari 2600, and then, you know, the market fell out of the video game industry in 1983, mm. and that never came to light. But there were two other games. I only play. I, I think there were two others. I only played Tron Deadly Discs, which was just, you know, a disc-throwing game. You'd have your... your opponent on the other side of the screen you'd throw the light disc and it was just simple and dumb but i played the hell was it out deadly? of it tron deadly discs yeah 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 it was deadly all right and they had a, a pretty a fun d-res animation when you'd get hit because you'd like you'd get hit and then they'd split the your character model like you'd, you'd f- yeah. be flying back like you're in pain and then you'd get split and derezzed across it was for what it was That's it cool. was fun um, but that's, that's pretty much my Tron experience was, you know, a little arcade and a lot of Tron Deadly Discs on the Atari 2600. Um, yeah. Interestingly enough, even though it's a, a video game thing, I never cared for Tron. Um, and th- this is before I watched, you know, watched it now as an adult and, and was relatively bored by it. Like I never had interest to begin with. Um, even as a kid, like I, I watched the the bike thing and everything was like, oh, well, that's memorable and everything. And I re- remembered the bikes, but that was about it. And I never really had a desire to to watch it well, and, or and play the games or, or pay attention to it. If you're interested in uh, Tron, for, not you, obviously, but anyone who happens to be listening to it, uh, the Wikipedia page for it does have some interesting stuff about the origin of it and why Tron was made. And, and you know, it was, it was inspired by Pong. And uh, I I like I, I like the motivation that uh, Steven Lisberger had for writing this story. In that, and it says here, he was frustrated by the click-like nature of computers and video games and wanted to create a film that would open this world up to everyone. Hmm. <laughs> I just want to say God bless you Steven Lisberger God bless So basically these days If you brought the movie out now With the same intention Everyone would be calling him a cuck That's correct Yeah Yeah <sighs> The more things change eh? Yep You want to talk about so Tron? should we talk about Yeah let's talk about Tron We open with 1982 computer graphics, uh, moving patterns of dots and lines that uh, eventually reveal themselves to represent a city. Did you know that the Academy Awards were, uh, they they excluded Tron from uh, winning an award for visual design and stuff? I read that. I read that they wouldn't allow it to be nominated. Yep. At the time, they considered computer uh, effects cheating. So... (laughs) So they, they were having none of it. Now that's it, that's a big, huge, huge change in uh, in where we are. Yeah. Do you think the filmmakers, like when they decided to change it, like got got on the phone to the Academy Awards and were like, "Hang on a minute, like can we have one now?" <laughs> <laughs> I like to think they got given like a silver honorary one. They, you know what? They should receive some kind of you know like. Honorable Honestly, mention, like, like lifetime you achievement. Say about the film, 
it was innovative and, and, and a landmark. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, and, I wouldn't think that unfair yeah. at all. The fact it's, it's, it was condemned for cheating uh, when it basically inspired or, or, you know, was part of the genesis of so much of what filmmaking is now. Like, it's, uh, that kind of sucks. It does kind of suck. It's like being the guy who invented the chicken nugget. Yeah, Tron is a chicken nugget. <laughs> so presumably in this city that we're shown is Flynn's, a local arcade where the kids gather to play games like Light Cycle, uh, which we see someone put a quarter in and start playing. We don't see the person, we just see hands, uh, because it's all about the games. Uh, and then and how you play it, it's all about control, and if you can take it, it's all about the game. Sorry. So as he starts playing, the camera moves into the screen to show that there is a digital world beneath where this blue light cycle is piloted by a cranky looking dude. And the orange light cycle is piloted by a very nervous looking chap. And ultimately, the orange guy is forced into his own trail and destroyed to the dismay of the player. It's a confusing visual language. It is, and With it sort of the jumps good guys right being blue, and the but the bad bikes being blue. Right? Yeah. Uh, yes. It was very difficult for me to figure out who the good bike and bad bike was because you only sort of have the framing around the character when they're shown in the cockpit. Yeah, and we're so used to like identifying blue as just like like bog standard good color. Right. Uh, which and, and, and it doesn't help then that the characters themselves and their little overlay colors are, you know, the, the blue guy is the good exactly. guy in the orange exactly, craft. Yeah. It's, it's, it's bizarre. Although originally it was going to be, I think that the bad guys were going to be orange and the good guys were going to be red. And then at some point they changed the colors to, to red and blue. Well, that's interesting. I had read that in the original, like, very first designs for Tron, uh, he was intended to be yellow. And then that got right. changed to, to blue somewhere along the line. But I hadn't... Okay, maybe it, it might have been... Uh, it might have actually been yellow rather than orange. Mm. Or it could have been both. It yeah, who been, knows? You know, it could have been at any time. But, uh, yeah, say what you will about Tron. Like, it's... Its production is way more interesting than the movie. Like, there's a ton of, of facts yeah. that are worth um, knowing. So the scene shifts to some digital airship thing? And the cranky dude, whose name is Sark, gets in contact with uh, his superior, uh, the Master mm-hmm. Control. He's also the bad guy from Time Bandits. Yes, he is. He's great. The uh, MCP offers... Well, we, we've seen him in something else, too. I think we have, yeah, David Warner. Um, wasn't he... I remember seeing him... Was he wearing a suit? He was some bad... I mean, he's always a bad guy. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. It wasn't that Watch long Watch it turn ago. out he was a good guy in this... In the one we watched. I'm just going to sound stupid. No, he... Uh, what was it? I mean, he's been in tons of crap yeah. over the years. Yeah, he's yeah. I mean, just... He's, he's, but it was something We've that we watched him. recently that was not good. Oh, Wing Commander. He was Tallwin in Wing Commander. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's Sark. 
and he's getting uh, his uh, getting some orders from the master control. The master control offers Sarka a greater challenge than the programs that he's been competing in these games with. Uh, says he's kidnapped some military programs. He uses that word, kidnaps. Mm-hmm. Just kind of. But that's actually how it worked. Like, like a computer program was leaving its apartment, and another computer program snuck up behind it and and just put a bag over its head and ran off into the night laughing. And that is seemingly what's happening, actually, mm-hmm. uh, in in very real terms. But uh, computer programs just like forced into the back of a light cycle where there are. Goons wearing sunglasses. Well, yeah, I mean, we're immediately shown a a different kind of scared program that explains that he's just a financial program of some kind being led into a cell by guards with spears (laughs) and protesting that he can't play video games. Uh, He's just out of shape. He's not built for it. And, And he's threatening the vengeance of his user. And so, like, it's worth noting here that we are, I think at this point, maybe 40 seconds into the movie. (laughs) It's, yeah, I mean, it it, it all happens pretty quick. It is, it is really, but it shoved a whole lot of of implications and questions in front of us very, very quickly. And let's, let's be honest complications <laughs> like the whole movie is troubling when you try and like work out how this logistically all should happen <coughs> and and, so and now we've introduced... never try and think too much about Tron because like you you might like just have a coma happen at you well we've we've had the introduction of this strange logistical system where Programs are being made to serve purposes that they were not programmed to do. They are being subverted by some other program in this society. And and and, and got to understand the only explanation we have that sort of illuminates that this is a digital world is a camera fade from a, an arcade machine monitor. To some guys riding around in bikes on a you know, computer-generated environment. See, for all we know, this could just be the game still being played. Yeah. And, and it goes from a racing game to a sort of point-and-click adventure. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, and now they're just tossing a religion in on top of that. It's like, great. We needed another structure to try and understand. Um, so this program gets shoved into a cell where he meets another program uh, named Ram and establishes that the master control program, which is what Sark was talking to earlier, has taken total control over this system. So there you go. Meanwhile, in the real world, and that's not just me saying it this time. It literally says it across the screen. Oh, yeah. Um... I think Master Control Program at one point just explicitly calls it the real world as well. Later yes, it on. does. Uh, we meet Kevin Flynn, uh, who is some hacker guy. He's directing yep. a 
his program. Very young uh, Jeff Bridges. Very young Jeff Bridges. And he's directing his program, Clue, to find some deleted files. Clue does this by driving a tank through a maze. I guess that's the interpretation in the digital world. But here's what's so kind of fascinating about this scene, this first example that we see of it, where the programmer is talking to his program in a sort of call-and-response manner. Yeah. And speaking aloud to it. And I think that this sort of, like kind of hits on something interesting. Because Flynn has no awareness that the programs operating have this digital world inside it. Like that they're not, you know, that they're operating autonomously and, yeah. and that they, they are personified in some way, but still speaks to them as though they are, right? Yeah. And we do this with our stuff too, all the time. We talk to our that machines is... all the time. Well, I, we, I was joking just before we started the recording about how I was bargaining with my audio recording software to get it to retain some files. And so the stra- it, there's a strange... I don't even know what you'd call it. Like, it's, 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 I, I, I think it's clever. I think this is intentional, you know. Um, it's, it feels weird in a sense seeing it in this context because of how specifically he's responded to. And, yeah. and, and it's, sort of, it's sort of suggested that the programs that they write are communicating in language in a way that computers really weren't capable of doing and still in a lot of ways aren't and wouldn't be designed yeah. to because it wouldn't be practical um, to, do it, to do that, I don't think. Um, but now we're just starting to see, I think, the realization of systems uh, that have, you know, base artificial intelligence and able to communicate information to humans. And, and we're constantly working on ways of refining that. And so it's prescient in a way, too, because I think we probably will be talking to programs in understandable human relatable terms more and more as time goes on. Uh, just kind and then of, we'll get our Knight Rider cars. Damn right. But yeah, so it's just a, kind of a, a fascinating first glimpse of it because it it doesn't have the explicit awareness that the subsequent scene that we're going to see here shortly um, captures this. Yeah. But um, so Clue's driving his tank through its maze and gets attacked by a seemingly endless swarm of recognizers. These are these sort of arch-shaped drone ships. Really fascinating bit of visual imagery. Uh, yeah, they're very oddly, because there's nothing elegant or, or cool-looking about them. They're just big things. Big and seemingly impractical. Yeah. They have yeah, this like they're, small they're... chamber in the center, and you could get some troops in there. You know, it could be a small troop carrier, maybe two dozen units for something that is enormous. Yeah. And have... it, it looks like a lot of wasted space and everything, but it is very striking. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it ha- 
even though it looks impractical, it's still designed in a way that it looks like there is a reason for it. Right, yeah. It's because nothing that, like, weird would get designed without a practical purpose. Yeah, it and l- nothing that weird would be designed by, like, us. Right. Like, as people. So it sort of just makes that world look all the more alien. Yeah. That that is considered, you know, an optimal craft. Well, and of course, these crafts are the enemies in the Space Paranoids game. Yes. As we'll come to find. But, uh, yeah, so... uh, Clue gets chased by these recognizers. He eventually crashes his tank and uh, is captured, sending his little floating bit off. This, This just completely generated geometric shape that represents a bit which is just a, a yes, no, a zero or a one, um, but visualized in this way, kind of interesting. Uh, a yeah. very Disney thing. There's a, there's a lot of very... In the it's annoying. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of very just Disney-fied shit in this movie. And and I was talking, we were talking before we started recording we were, yeah. uh, about how this movie, uh, it's easy to forget because of how easy it is to forget Tron in general uh, and only really able to remember its visual iconography, that there's all of this stuff that is Disney. Like, it is a Disney production. It's easy to forget that that fact is true until you see the movie in its entirety. Yeah, when you get the full whack of it contextualized. Yeah. Then, then as Conrad says, like, it's it's clear you are watching a Disney film, and, and a Disney film of its time. At that, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like because again, as 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 Conrad and I were talking, like he pointed out that you know they do all the Marvel stuff, the Star Wars stuff now, but in the eighties, Disney was not doing cool films. No, they were doing it was it was hammy stuff. It was uh, you know I mean it was all family friendly, but it it didn't have any sort of edge to it as a result. Uh, yeah. This was probably the edgiest thing Disney was making around this time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on reflection, and, and, and you know, I mean, it, I mean, unless you want to count, you know, zippity doo dah. Well, I mean, there were things that they it was did more edgy in retrospect. There were things that they did were du- that were dark, uh, black cauldron, um, you know, things like that. That had come along and been part of the landscape, but hell, Fantasia had tits in it. Yeah, they were on harpies. It was the night of Bald Mountain bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, okay. but yeah, that's that 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 bit is the first I think real example of a uh, sort of strange, you know, like likable, not really, you know, like, a, but a comic relief. It's the mascot character. Yeah, the ma- that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, and, and fascinating, too, that this sort of seemingly shoved-in mascot thing, which is, <coughs> excuse me, it's, it's cleverly justified. And if you're into computers, that's kind of a cute gimmick. But it's the least memorable of all of the stuff that's in this. Well, it's not even in it all that much. No, it, it gets it gets this brief bit and then a a time to shine, I guess you could say. Yeah, it gets this little moment in the spotlight. But 
it's hard to it's it's hard to argue that it should have had more screen time. No, and it's uh, and there's it's, not a lot you can really do with something that just says yes, no, and doesn't have any expressions or looks like anything. It's there to be a neat visual effect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and to provide some some comic relief during an action sequence. But uh, so, clues captured. He's taken to the MCP where he refuses to reveal the identity of his user and is uh, destroyed, or as they call it in, in Tron world, de-rezzed. De-rezzed. Uh, the MCP calls for Dillinger. And we meet this Dillinger, who arrives by helicopter, super practical, to the ENCOM building. and A, tr- a troned out uh, helicopter, no less. Oh, yeah. With all the red lighting, strip lighting on it. It's very, very neon and sleek. It's actually pretty cool. It's a cool helicopter. Why does this stuff look so much cooler in the real world? Because <laughs> it's really there. So he goes to sit at his badass computer desk. Yes. And, this, and... Is, this is the kind of computer desk that I think computer nerds from this era and of my age for a long time fantasized about until we realized how impractical it would be. <laughs> Like everything lights up from underneath the display, and you know, touch it. It's a touch keyboard and so forth. And you look at how it would have been designed then, like just under the practical considerations compared to how the technology would accomplish this task now. And you think about how limiting that computer desk design would have actually been. Yeah. Versus now. Uh, Not only that, but think of the overheating. And uh-huh. the power. Like, I, I would have liked it if that scene was almost inaudible because you could just hear, like, a generator in the background just... <laughs> the moment he turned his desk on. <laughs> I've just got to fire up my table. And then he just gets out a crank, just... <laughs> I am ready to sit at my table now. And, and so in this scene, Dillinger speaks aloud with the MCP, which you yes. know, sp- speaks aloud back to him in a very direct... Is he, clearly... Is the actor having a conversation with himself? Yeah. He's make, and it makes, so it's making it explicitly clear that at least in this circumstance, this program is directly talking with Dillinger. And it has some concerns. Um... It's a little bit worried about this invasive program, which is correctly assumed is the work of Flynn trying to access a file that both it and Dillinger seem well aware of the existence of. And so Dillinger decides to restrict access to the system as a precaution. This is this is the moment where Dillinger fucks himself. The- yeah, that was a very un-Disney scene. This is the, it's very early on, but this is the, the domino that he knocks over that sets in chain, in, you know, the, the chain reaction off that results yeah. in his, his downfall. It, it's this moment right here making a big thing about restricting access to the system. You know, he could have just gone and killed Flynn. It's not like he doesn't have a building with his name on the side of it. You can find this guy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He doesn't. He does just sort of trust it to nothing. Well, he trusts it to <laughs> really? sort itself out, 
you know, yeah, he just I mean, relies that's it. on the like system. Little... And that's indicative of his whole pro- of his whole issue is that he's not a as we learn a, a creative problem solver or necessarily a genius. Um he's a, an opportunist who has now sort of gotten himself involved in something he didn't understand and can't control. Uh, yeah. Well, he lets himself get talked down to by his desk. <laughs> If my table turns around to me and said, I'm very disappointed in you, I'd say, fuck off, I'll buy a new table. (laughs) Elsewhere at NCOM, Alan Bradley is another programmer. He's having difficulty working on his Tron program because his access just got suspended by Dillinger. And he's ordered to report to the VP. Um... And so he does so, and, and Dillinger explains that everybody in this group that uh, Bradley's working in, it's called Group 7, has had their access suspended temporarily while some problems are addressed uh, with the MCP. And uh, and then he asks about uh, what Bradley's working on in a sort of collegial manner. Uh, gets a bit disconcerted when Bradley explains that the Tron program is a security program that monitors contacts between NCOM's system and other systems outside of it that operates independently of the master control program and then would sort of, uh, you know, be aware of everything the master control program's doing. And that doesn't sound good because the master control program is clearly up to some some no-good shenanigans. So after Bradley leaves, the MCP proceeds to berate Dillinger for allowing this <laughs> Tron program to even exist. And, and, really does give him a talking day. Yeah, and, and further reinforces the fact that he has been up to some shady shit on Dillinger's behalf. Um, yeah, mentions all the the exterior software that he's cracked into and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Now, unable to work on his project, Alan decides he's going to go interrupt his girlfriend Laura's job. <laughs> so he heads down to the laser bay. They have a laser bay. That's real. And that, the, the laser bay is a real place. Is it? Yeah, I saw that on the x-ray thing. Oh, wow. Um, it, was, it was really lengthy, and, and I didn't read it all. But the laser bay is real. I, well, I mean, it's... It, it is. It would be a hell of a set to build, to say the yeah. least. I, yeah, they they already found a laser bay and, it's just and, this and filmed in it. Strange maze of catwalks and and big, uh, really unidentifiable machinery. And it looks like a fucking like a, a late to mid game level in a shooter. It does. Yeah, it's just it's just really dense. It's a strange place where it's... enemy soldiers would shoot down at you. But it's an interesting environment, and and stark in the same, but in in an inverse fashion to the digital world of Tron, in that it is all very white. Like the laser bay is a ton of white, like most tech jobs. <laughs> Heyo. <laughs> So, uh, Laura is working with a Dr. Gibbs, he's one of NCOM's founders, trying to digitize physical objects and then reconstruct them. And they're at least halfway there with an orange. Uh, they, they run a test to digitize this orange, 
and this it disappears. And they're all excited. Device. Hey, we managed to do that. Wouldn't you wait to see if you could get it back? <laughs> or is that just how far along they are in the process? And they're like, okay, now we get to crack this next problem. I don't know. I just don't know. But Maybe Alan they just hate pitching. oranges in general. What's that? Maybe they just hate oranges. Well, that could be. They just maybe it's a it's a device to get rid of oranges <laughs> and other citrus fruit. So Alan starts bitching about how bad the system's become ever since that darn MCP came around. But Gibbs tries to encourage some patience. This sort of you know elderly um, uh, patron figure that he is. Uh, he's pointing out that oh, the computers are just machines and they can't think for themselves. Uh, sort of presciently suggesting a world where computers wind up doing more thinking than humans do. So walking away, Laura draws a connection between the restriction on Alan's access and Flynn, who is also her ex-boyfriend. Now, Alan really bristles a lot at the mention of Flynn and the introduction of Flynn into this arrangement. And I would be too, frankly, if, you know, I come down to tell my girlfriend about the problem I'm having with my work issue and her first thought is her (laughs) (laughs) ex-boyfriend. Yeah, I'd be a little bit offended. (laughs) I can see the concern that he has. (laughs) Who is this man? <laughs> uh, so she decides that they should hoard Flynn, that Dillinger's onto him, and they go to his arcade. And they find him playing Space Paranoids, uh, one of NCOM's biggest video game successes, and breaking a world record in the process. So good for Flynn. It's all in the wrists, he says. He's got, he's got his life sorted. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's living in a crappy apartment above the arcade. And up there, uh, Laura asks him if he's been hacking NCOM, which he admits to. Um, says he's looking for evidence that Dillinger's rise in the company was due to stealing credit for Flid's video game designs. And when he learns from Laura that Dillinger is wise to him, he despairs until Alan gets all excited about how his trod program could shut down the MCP if only he could get access to it. And he comes up with this kooky plan about how they should break into the company's headquarters to use forged credentials on directly connected terminals. Seems legit to me. Everybody's immediately on board with this plan without hesitation. Like, I know, I know that Tron is a fictional movie, but hearing the plan back to me, I just got fired up about going to... I was about to say, let's go do it. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's, it's a good plan. It's a real good plan. So, back at NCOM, Gibbs is having a conversation with Dillinger about the access issues and how the MCP is causing problems. Uh, but Dillinger is steadfast and a dick. <laughs> Reminding Gibbs that the company is no longer the organization he founded, it's now a huge multinational affair, and basically threatens to fire him. He's a smug prick. I'm sorry. <laughs> He's so good at it, too. Like, Oh, yeah. It is. It, 
his the performance as Dillinger is the best in the film. Yeah. Easily. I mean, he's also Sark and Master Control Program, so he's, he's pulling triple duty. Yeah, whereas most of the actors in this are only playing two parts at most. Lazy. Lazy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Flynn and the gang enter NCOM through the thickest door ever constructed by man. This is like a seven foot thick door. <laughs> well, how best to keep people out? I guess. Uh, they didn't get through it. Right, but he just, he has, Flynn has this like computer gadget that he made that he attaches to the door's input terminal and just, they just walk in. It's not a great nah, door. I, d- I, don't, I don't remember that. The seven foot thick door kept him out. Definitely. Uh, it, how would it not? It's seven foot thick. You wouldn't build a door that thick and just to let people walk through it. Come on, Conrad. The MCP, <laughs> no longer satisfied with raiding corporate systems to benefit NCOM and specifically Dillinger, tells Dillinger that it intends to penetrate the Pentagon, the Kremlin, and other government systems in what sounds like a bid for world domination. <laughs> Yeah. Threatening to expose Dillinger's crime of stealing video game designs if he gets (laughs) in his way. (laughs) To which his response is, you wouldn't dare. Like, that's... What, you know, this is the best evidence to what an enormous prick Dillinger is. This computer... Is uh, this this program that you have designed, which you are aware is probably the most advanced computer and is self-aware, mm-hmm. artificially intelligent and highly efficient, has now made the conscious decision to take over the world because it thinks it can run things more efficiently than man. Now, regardless of whether or not it's correct, it, it just sort of depends on what its end objective is going to be. And I've read enough of these stories to know that they almost always end in the computer deciding humans aren't necessary at all. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, that, that's the end point of any artificial intelligence. So this is a real character development scene for Dillinger because now not only do we es- have we established that he's not particularly creative or talented as a programmer per the re- previous description by Flynn... He's never read any science fiction. What kind of computer programmers never read any science fiction? It it boggles the mind. A very rubbish one. (laughs) But on top of all of this, he's in the position to save the world. And the only thing he has to do is admit to some light corporate espionage. (laughs) And he's horrified at the possibility. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's more terrifying hearing that than hearing about the master control program taking over the Pentagon and the Kremlin. <laughs> like, it's... His program going full Skynet is nowhere near as horrifying as the idea that someone will find out he stole a video game. Alan heads to his office to wait while Laura 
takes Flynn to her ter terminal in the laser bay. And once there, Flynn starts hacking, and the MCP confronts him. And they have a vocal back-and-forth dialogue. Um, but the text is shown, the text from, the, the, the speech from the MCP is shown on the screen as text. So that sort of kind of then explains that, you know, it's a, it's a visual representation, again, of that communication going on between users and their programs, uh, in, yeah. not in the same sort of seemingly intelligent or advanced fashion as the computer desk in Dillinger's office, uh, obviously, but it's, it's there I think again. because... Because if it had started just talking to him, that scene would have gone very different. Right. Because but, Flynn would just be grabbing his head and screaming. Yeah. And so, but the, I guess the, the problem with this is that for the viewer, you know, they want to have the MCP's voice in there because it's easier to consume. But then it makes this whole thing really confusing. And, and yeah. but Flynn seems to have grasped that the MCP has, has really advanced um, they have a conversation about how they used to play chess together, and uh, and that was the origin of this this program is that it was a a chess program that has now grown to run this entire company. So he's he is seem, seemingly somewhat aware of what it represents, but he underestimates it because Flynn is super creative and he comes up with some impossible logic problems to keep it distracted. Uh, now, not realizing that he's, I guess, sitting in front of a laser that de that digitizes things, too? I mean, it's hard to have predicted. It didn't really come honest. up in conversation. Uh, no. But the, uh, the MCP says, fine, screw it. I'm going to put you on the game grid, points the laser at Flim, and digitizes him. And we get a, another lengthy bit of computer animation uh, to follow, after which Flynn finds himself in the digital world, but doesn't really, like, understand or know what it is yet. He's just sort of confused and disoriented. And uh, the MCP forces take Flynn captive immediately. Um, Sark receives some orders to go face him on the game grid and is noticeably unsettled when MCP gives him the knowledge that Flynn is a user. Uh, so even, even knowing that the MCP is the great power here, uh, and Sark works directly for him and knows its, its strength, he is still frightened by the concept of having to face a user. That, that, that concept has power to him. Yeah. Um, they, they're... Well, I mean, they... It's written off as a religious thing, but but those who quote unquote believe in the users view them as you know gods or what have you. Right, and and even so, he's basically been told a a, a god has come down from on high in physical form. But and and or even digital form. Even yeah, and Sark, yeah, is is like really kind of deeply unsettled by this. So that's a, it's. A, I'd have been a bit nervous. It's a good scene. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of fascinating because he is the, the bad guy and to see the bad guy express fear is uh, always sort of an interesting dynamic, uh, to see come up in a film. Yeah. Um, Flynn is thrown into a cell where he also gets to meet Ram, 
the program we the, the very affable program we were introduced to earlier and finds out that he's there to play video games and then is immediately taken out of the cell. Like, it's very quick. He's in and then he's out of the cell again and presented to Sark, who's sort of addressing a whole lineup of other programs from his digital airship thing. And he offers, Sark offers the programs a choice of renouncing their belief in the users to become servants of the MCP or face certain death in the games due to substandard training and equipment. Um, he also explains that every program there is provided an identity disk that retains all of their gained knowledge and that they'll be derezzed if they lose it or if they fail to follow instructions. So there you go. Now, I guess these people are necessary, these programs are necessary for the video games. I guess. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, no, I mean, this is. The, the, I didn't question a lot of this film because I knew I'd, like, lose my grip if I tried. Right. So, you know, him talking to Master Control, like, Flynn talking to Master Control Program. Flynn not freaking out uh, like he should be. Um, well, I think, what I think any from... of these programs do. Like, I didn't think too hard about any of it. I think the for film my does a pretty good job of presenting Flynn as a super cool cat who is not, his feathers are not ruffled easily. And so I, I, I think it works that he's not freaked out that much. Uh, this is definitely the proto dude. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, this is, Tron is a is a prequel to the Big Lebowski. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's he used the money he got from <laughs> from the credit for inventing video games. He used that to buy the rug. <laughs> so as they're uh, as this group of programs are being marched away following this address, Flynn sees a program that's taking on four opponents in it in oh, this disc throwing thing, and it's Tron. He fights for the users. After a fun scene where Flynn learns that RAM is a financial program and really into helping people invest for their future, I love this conversation that they have. I love RAM. He is good, he, yeah. He's just so... Affable's the word. Yeah. He's, he's just cheery and talks about like financial investment as if it's the greatest thing thing you could do he loves his responsibilities uh it's just very charming he's got a great smile he's the one i like out of all the the human played characters um aside from sark as a kid he was the one i remembered to the point where in my mind thinking back that's what tron looks like oh like, that's who Tron was, was this nervous, like, affable guy. Like, it's, it's funny how one's sort of very young brain processes these things, but mm -hmm. that, he was the memorable one. He is memorable. Um, so uh, then uh, Flynn is taken to the ring game. Now, the, the ring game is an interesting idea for a game, too. It's... Uh, are those like lacrosse things that they're 
they have on their arms? I, I think that's lacrosse. Is that lacrosse? Yeah. They have these. I, I think. <laughs> basically, scoopy things that you fling balls out of and catapult. Right, yeah, they have one of these. Arm trebuchets. On each arm, this sort of catapulting uh, scoop that yeah. uh, is used for flinging balls. And the way the game works is they're each on a separate platform composed of individual rings. And they fling this ball, bouncing it off the ceiling, trying to get it past the other player to hit their platform. And whatever ring on the platform is struck by the ball is disintegrated. And so uh, a player loses when they fall through the bottom of the platform. It's a pretty cool game. Like, that could be a, a good sport. That, yeah. That's some American Gladiator shit right there. I was just about to say, yeah, there's uh, something very Gladiators about this. Mm-hmm. Um, when Flynn's opponent falls and is clinging to the edge of the platform for dear life, uh, Flynn refuses to play further despite, Star- despite Sark's insistence. And I keep wanting to call him Stark. Um, so Sark just drops the dude and considers doing the same to Flynn before remembering that his orders were to make sure that Flynn died playing. So Flynn's then taken to the light cycle waiting room, where he runs into Ram again, along with Tron, who Flynn mistakes for Alan because he looks like Alan. And Tron recognizes that name as the name of his user. So they got all that in common. So this is, uh, I guess, the point at which... It is firmly established because it's really, really hard to tell, um, I think, with the outfits that they wear in the digital world, that Clue is played by Jeff Bridges. Yeah. Like, I I only knew because, again, because of the Amazon X-ray that, that pops up. And Dillinger is more obvious, certainly, the, yeah. the Dillinger-Sark connection. But I don't even think it does a a particularly great job, you know, with his big hood thing. I I still had problem recognizing him at first. (laughs) Uh, So this this explicitly stating it here uh, is the first time that the audience actually gets, okay, so that's what's happening here. And that's the God thing again, isn't it? Right? These are, these programs are creations made in the image of their creators. Yeah. And this whole religious subtext thing that keeps coming up in here feels like it should be more important than it actually is. Plus, for me, it makes me think of, like, the people who wrote the, like, the original computer code decades before the 80s. Like, in their mind, they thought, oh, 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 before we finish this off and build the world's first computer, like, as 20 foot tall as it is, um, we better make sure all the programming and all the code looks like people. Well, it's, it, Gibbs sort of intimates this in his conversation with Dillinger earlier in the film that, you know, all of the, you can't take, he's, you know, saying that you can't get rid of people like him and Alan because they put a piece of themselves into all of the code that they write. Yeah. And And, and by that, he explicitly means they make the code look like themselves. (laughs) (laughs) There's one thing they teach you in tech, right? When you first start is every bit of code you write, 
you make it look exactly like it's you. It's got to look but, like you. But in like a in a, in a, a suit covered in glow sticks. <laughs> So anyway, uh, they've got this Allen connection in common, and they also have in common a desire to shut down the MCP. So they're fast friends. And speaking of fast, they get their light cycles on in a team match situation. So it's the three of them, Ram, Tron, and, and Flynn, up against three other random who knows. Doesn't matter because they're going to lose. Um, as this racing is going on, one of the bikes creates a hole in the grid when it collides with the wall. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem like a normal thing that would happen. Again, I was not questioning it. I know it doesn't make sense. I know it doesn't adhere to even the film's rules. But Flynn... But it's fine. Flynn drives through the hole to escape the light cycle grid. <laughs> it looks cool. It does look cool. That's all that matters. It looks cool. Uh, and Tron and Ram follow behind. Uh, the three of them being, uh, they're hunted by tanks, trying to track them down, and Tron resolves to reach an IO tower and communicate with his user, Alan, as a necessary step in their efforts to take down the MCP. But first, we need another Disney moment. And so they stop to drink water, or energy, from a oh, this fucked up thing. pure source... And it is, it is a strange, strange out-of-place scene. Yeah. Where they're all, like, drinking this water and seemingly getting high. Loving it, yeah. Like, like I think, isn't it Flynn who just can't fucking stop? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's definitely got an addictive personality. He's, he, yeah. He, he's he's going to be a junkie. <laughs> that's, that's what you don't see. In, in the time between Tron and Tron Legacy, after he gets, you know, into the digital world permanently in that film, he spends, like, the equivalent of 30 human years in there just shooting up. <laughs> just freebasing. A time moves a lot faster in there. <laughs> so it, He's had an eternity to get home. Yeah, yeah, he later finds his zen, and that's when you get to see him again, right? They skip over yeah. that whole, you know, him finding bottom thing. By the time we, we see him in Tron Legacy, he's just hit his sort of, you know, 70s George Harrison fight. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's... Before that, though, the shit he was getting into and the shit that was getting into him. He's 70 cycles sober. <laughs> <laughs> he's taking up meditation. He's got his shit together. Uh, he's written an acoustic uh, guitar song about his experience, if you'd like to hear it. <laughs> um, no, thank you, Jeff. But the only thing missing from this is, like, butterflies, cartoon butterflies flitting around them as they relax in this peaceful moment. It's really Yeah. Weird. It's Nami and me. So then they head off to the IO Tower again, and on their way there, a tank destroys the bridge, separating Tron from Ram and Flynn. Uh, thinking them derez, Tron goes on without them, but Flynn, Flynn drags Ram out of sight of the tanks, and they escape, uh, eventually finding their way onto the bridge of a destroyed recognizer to, you know, rest for a bit and hide out from the, the, the tanks. 
Uh, taking a brief snooze, Kevin wakes up when he powers on the recognizer with his touch. <sighs> to the horror of the dying ram. And, and then he proceeds to rebuild it mostly with basically the force of his will. And taking it for a spin uh, for a bit, uh, Ram calls to him and asks him if he's a user, which Flynn confirms, and then asks Flynn to help Tron before he dies. And it's kind of a touching, aw, sad moment. A couple of years after the events of this film, people would still ask Flynn if he was a user, and it would have a very different connotation. Near the I.O. Tower, Tron meets up with Yori, uh, another program, and apparently his girlfriend? Now, she looks like Laura in the real world, so Mm -hmm. uh, I guess that works out pretty well for them, huh? Yeah, it's it's convenient. Did they, did they program them to be into each other? Like, yeah, this just went into a weird place, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, not sure how I feel about it. They sneak off together. Piloting the recognizer, Flynn has an encounter with a, a bit absent from his program, and it's presumably Clue's bit uh, from earlier in the One film. One of shootings, yeah. Um, and it's, it attaches itself to Flynn. And provides a whole bunch of comic relief to uh, contrast with Flynn's difficulties in piloting the recognizer. And there's this whole long comic scene where he's just a bad driver being mocked by the bit with only yes and no as the responses. It's, it's pretty well written, I have to say, for this kind of simple gag. It's fun. It, it, it's, it, it is a scene it's, that I completely yeah. forgot existed. And yeah. wound up being a pleasant surprise in the film. Yeah, it didn't do much for me, but... But it's uh, forgettable, ultimately. It's just me. Yeah. Uh, it's very Disney, I guess, is the thing. It's like a chitty-chitty bang-bang kind of vibe. Um, so, crashing the recognizer, he wanders past a bunch of programs that seem to have no interest in him whatsoever. These are, are mentioned casually by Tron and Yori in an earlier scene as being something like output generators or something like that. Like they're, they're really just announcements. They're programs that just exist to make announcements. They're spam bots. We're seeing the first spam bots <laughs> here in Tron. They predicted spam bots. This movie has it all. It really does. Uh, then he wanders around for a bit, Flynn does, and, and hides from a patrolling group of MCP loyalists. And, and once they've gone past him, he drops down and knocks one of them out for no reason I can discern. To have something happen. I guess. <laughs> I guess. Uh, but, but then he takes on their color in the process, and that seems to surprise him. It surprises me too, and I don't see what the point is. Um, Tron and Yori make their way to the I.O. Tower climbing on what appear to be bundled cables which is an interesting visual design choice Uh, combining I I think it is interesting how they combine some of the physical features of circuitry and computers uh, in this digital environment Um, 
the, the design. You've got to wonder, it. like, what they mean by it. Like, are they supposed to be physical wires, even though this is meant to be all digital, or are they like just representations? Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? Is it just the architecture, but... or does it serve a purpose? Here I am thinking about it again, which is just dangerous. Yori slips into This is the... not just Tron, by the way. Anything set inside computers, you can't ever think about them too much. Reboot, same thing. <laughs> I don't know. I like I like to think about them because I, I like thinking about the context uh, applied to... Uh, to these physical items and digital items and how we think about them and how we imagine them with a life of their own, how we personify them and anthropomorphize them. And that's why one day you're going to go full sleepaway camp on some people. uh, Probably true. It's probably true. Uh, So they get to the IO tower um, and Yori slips in through a window up top, but Tron gets spotted by a recognizer as he's going in, and they, they rush off to meet DeMont, knowing that uh, that they're going to be pursued. Uh, DuMont is the program that manages the tower. He's represented by Gibbs here so in this world, so Gibbs wrote this program seemingly. This is basically like a digital Wizard of Oz. It is, yeah. Very much so. Um, Dumont's res- reticent to help them at first, but he's eventually convinced to allow Tron to contact Alan. And so he goes into this weird chamber thing. Like, flower petals, I feel, was like the inspiration for the design of this room. Like, he's inside a flower. Almost, is what it feels like visually. It's a neon flower. It's kind of kind of cool. And he steps into a beam of light in the center of it and holds up his identity disc. And it floats up and out of the tower and sets up the communication link. And you can hear Alan's voice telling Tron that the data he needs to disrupt the MCP has been stored on his identity disc. And shows him where the disc will need to be placed for it to be effective. Which is like right in the middle of the MCP program, which is this huge spinning thing like to like a cone or i i loved what south park did with moses yeah like when i think of mcp that is often the first thing i think of is is moses yeah uh they because they made him dreidel shaped too which is just it oh yeah it's so brilliant and the mcp is it, for all intents and purposes it looks like a an acorn with uh um a more faceted number of sides as opposed to being smooth. Yeah. Uh, it's freaky looking. It is. It's really weird. And it, and it's weird in its communica- weird looking in its communications with Sark too, where it's presented as fully stretched out um, and yeah. flat. Yeah, it's, it's a creepy thing. Uh, Tron and Yori flee the tower just as Sark and his goons arrive with Flynn sneaking around in the background for reasons... Was he there to witness the conversation? It's unclear what he saw, what he knows, what he's doing. If if he is a god, he's a prankster god for sure. Because <laughs> the way he leads out, like, am I here? Am I not here? I'm hiding. Like, very strange. That, 
It was an odd line for him to to say and to deliver it in that voice. <laughs> and it's an impeccable impersonation you did. And, and Bridges has never done that voice before or nope, since. Just, just that, that one, one line. line. <laughs> Yori takes Tron back to the simulation she'd been working on uh, as a part of when they met up before. It's a, a solar sailor. That's the name they give it to. it. Uh, why? Is there a sun here that I'm unaware of? Digital sun, in it? Uh, but it can carry them back to the central core of the system where the MCP is located. They have a... Maybe when Dillinger opens it, like, the blinds in his office, <laughs> the, the table, like, has a little solar panel on it, and that's what, what, what it is. Well, it's, it's night. That's another thing I wanted to bring up about NCOM. <laughs> it is night, How yeah. late does everyone work here? It is. Is there even a single daytime scene in this whole film? At the very end, there is. In the final moments. Oh, yeah, yeah, at the very end. Yeah. yeah. The final moments of the film are in daylight. Everything else is at night. The long night is over because they have won. Maybe it's thematic. <laughs> well, that actually probably is. It probably is. I think I just think the helicopter didn't look as cool with its lights on in broad daylight. Yeah, no, yeah, but I think I think they were intending to to convey visual language there. Um, yeah, ham-fisted as it is. Uh, so they get on this solar sailor, and after fighting a guard, they take off with uh, Stark's digital airship. You actually did call him Stark. Then. Oh, damn it! Damn it! <laughs> Uh, it's in pursuit, complete with its own Star Destroyer crawl. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, it is the slowest crawl. And it's what you really want, like, this deep in the film. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, you know, not like in the early moments of the film where it can develop some dread as to what is this horrible thing. No. You want to put it now in the chase scene. <laughs> It was very much a case of uh, someone knowing a scene that worked and not quite knowing why it worked. And, like, this is a chase scene that, like, this is the chase scene that inspired OJ and Al Cowlings. It is <laughs> the slowest, most uneventful chase I've ever yeah. seen in a film. Well, again, I think this is where Tron is is restricted by its own ambition. Yeah. Because with the effects they were going for and the time period they're in, (laughs) can you get much more exciting? (laughs) Uh, The MCP punishes Sark for his failure, uh, gives him a good old shocking, and indicates that there probably won't be another failure allowed from him. Um, He then breaks this promise later, but we'll get there. Uh, Flynn shows up on the solar sailor somehow. Like It's all that sneaking around. <laughs> like, maybe that's what it is. They established already he is a sneaker. Yeah, I guess, but well after they've taken off, he climbs <laughs> up from the underside of the thing. Okay. And breaks the news of Ram's, of Ram's death to Tron. Tron then introduces Flynn to Yori, who he mistakens for Laura. And then Flynn reveals to them that, hey, by the way, I'm a user, and I'm going to shatter your entire 
worldview by letting you know (laughs) that there's no plan. We're not really gods. We're fuck-ups. Have a good day. Can you imagine what would happen to this world? If... I mean, honestly, everyone would probably start thinking the way Master Control Program does. Like, Master Control Program is the only one to have a real dialogue with humans. Clearly came to the same conclusion, and that this movie is the result. (laughs) Like, why at that point Tron doesn't just strangle Flynn and drags his corpse back to MCP, I do not know. (laughs) You were right. They're fuck up. Yeah, I mean, I told you. Like, if God, if if tomorrow, God descended from the heavens, and it, like confirmed its existence to us, and then immediately said, "Oh well, yeah. I mean, I exist, but like." And yeah, yeah, God is good, yeah, yeah. But I got to level with you. I'm not the guy you think I am. Yeah. Boy, you guys fucked up on the interpretation of what was going on here. Yeah, I mean, like, this whole place, I shat this out in a weekend, mate. You should see what I'm doing, like, (laughs) light years away. Well, and... That planet has its own pool. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, I know what you mean. Like, you've all got pools. No, one specific ocean is just a big swimming pool. <laughs> it's awesome. It's got it's got a, the universe's biggest wet bath. But they're all racists, because like I said, I fuck up. I'm God. What do you know? And then he just jumps into the sun. Pursued by recognizers very slowly... <laughs> The heroes yep. also have to deal with bit bugs on the surface below. They're green. Oh, God, those things. <laughs> They're green, <laughs> and this is the only time you're ever going to see them or hear them referred to. <laughs> you're right. I remember seeing them thinking, like, laughing, and then thinking, right, what are they going to do? Promptly forgetting about them, and it's only now that you've brought them up again, I realize the movie forgot about them as well. It never... Never does anything with them other than to. They sh- just kind of like squat up and down as as they all move forward in unison. Oh, we made these and cool robot it. spiders. What do we do with them? Uh, put them in. Yeah, maybe it was their idea at like trying to do the Star Wars thing of having like lots of different bits, like threads of lore and world building <laughs> all around it to make it dense. The trouble is, if you do that in just one scene with just one thing. <laughs> It's gonna stand out and not in a good way. Uh, Whatever. I wonder if I've not seen Tron Legacy. Are the bit bugs in it? Uh, you know, I I watched about half of it after watching Tron. Just, just, I just wanted to watch it long enough to get to the point where you you like start getting some Jeff Bridges, and he's <laughs> full on the dude. Of course he is. Uh, but no, no, I don't think. I don't think the bit bugs are brought back up again. Oh. I don't think I could be wrong. It's I have seen the full film before, but I'd forgotten it because it is just as forgettable as Tron. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Thus, cementing its legacy. 
<laughs> how apt. Oh, how apt because digital. Oh, boy, we're really on a we're really on a thread here. Yeah, let's let's get through this fucking. Thing. Okay, so Sark interrogates <laughs> Dumont. But it's really just an opportunity for Dumont to talk smack about the MCP. Literally nothing of value is gained or lost by this exchange other than time. Yeah. Uh, it's a roundabout way of just letting us know that he's not down with MCP. Well, you know me. <laughs> the MCP sends a power surge down the line that the solar sailor is riding on. Okay, sure, why not? Uh, that would destroy it. It's explained to us, so cool. Flynn then uses his body as a conduit to create a junction with another nearby line, basically touching this power beam and holding up his arm to send the power passing through his body and over to the other line, and that allows the ship to then transfer over to the other line, uh, avert the power surge coming after them, and then that goes and destroys all of those pursuing recognizers. So it works out. Yeah. Uh, as they continue to travel, uh, Tron and Yori marvel at the fact that Flynn is not derezzing after having done this, what should have seemingly been deadly feat. But then Sark flanks them as they pass through a canyon, and he crashes into the solar sailor, Flynn and Yori wind up taken captive uh, and put with Dumont long enough for Yori to tell him that Flynn's a user. Okay, another seemingly pointless scene. Why did Dumont need to know that... Sark then has Dumont taken away, but leaves Flynn and Yori behind, telling them the ship that they're on is going to de-res and kill them upon reaching its destination. So he's pulling, like, straight-up stupid supervillain shit now. <laughs> well, it's a Disney film. Straight-up stupid shit. And, and on top of that, he's violating his directives. Flynn's supposed to die on the game grid. So the- Oh, well, this movie has already forgotten about the bit bugs. You don't think they've remembered <laughs> that? <laughs> well, they made it a point to remember it before. But so he's just fucked this whole Yeah, thing. but that was too much remembering. They got tired. Meanwhile, Tron is also still alive. He's clinging to the outside of the ship. And when Sark arrives at the MCP, uh, they take... It's one of those bridge things from a recognizer, it seems like, with a whole bunch of programs to be delivered to the MCP. And that sort of breaks off from the larger ship and, and heads in its direction and the ship starts to de-res. Yori's pretty despondent and, and seems to give up, starting to de-res, but then Flynn trans- transfers some power to her, preventing that death, uh, and then convinces her to help him save their skin. So, yeah, that's, that's the power of God. I mean, this is like... I mean, I think that obviously some inspiration for the Matrix has to be attributed to Tron. Oh, no you know? doubt. And I mean, Flynn is the one, basically, by yeah. being a user. Uh, and and whereas in the Matrix, it's your... But it, it's interesting because in the Matrix, it's your implicit understanding 
of the mutability of the world that allows you to change it. Seemingly. That's the justification explanation. Mm -hmm. In here, he just does this shit and doesn't understand how he's doing it. Just wanted to throw that out there. So it's sort of another interesting incongruity to all of this. Um, yeah. Presumably, he learns one day. So, yes, uh, Tron confronts Sark outside of the MCP, uh, which is busy integrating a group of programs, including DeMont, uh, Dumont, into itself. So we're getting to see it actually growing in strength, or the way at which it does that, which is kind of interesting. Sark gets defeated in disc, in disc combat with Tron, and so the MCP opts to give Sark access to all of its functions in order to keep him in the fight. Yep. While Tron sort of impotently tries to get his identity disc past a, a force field that's protecting MCP. Now, if I were Sark, and the MCP had been pushing my ass around all of this time, yeah. And the MCP just gave me access to all of its functions. I'd shut down the MCP and take over the system. Cause this fucker's an asshole. Yeah. Well apparently Sark is is very loyal. Very loyal. Despite all of that. He gets up, now having grown several times his prior size, and uh gets in the way of Tron, who has been impotently attempting to get his identity disc past a force field that's protecting the MCP. On the semi-destroyed ship, Flynn has Yori pilot them directly over the beam coming from the center of the MCP. And after kind of inappropriately kissing her, like, they just met. She's got a boyfriend. You know this. What the mm -hmm. fuck's wrong with you, Flynn? Uh, he jumps off the ship and begins disrupting the MCP, giving Tron an opportunity to hit the mark with the identity disc. And the MCP is destroyed, uh, reverting back to its earlier state where we see it too was once coded by Gibbs. Um, access to the system is restored and the I.O. towers come online, allowing the users to access their programs once more. Uh, Flynn is returned to the Laser Lab at NCOM, and a dot matrix line printer, always fun, outputs the <laughs> evidence of Dillinger's misdeeds, which Flynn excitedly takes. Dillinger also gets to learn he's fucked when he sees the same info on his computer desk, we're then told in conversation between Alan and Laura on top of the building in the only daytime scene in the film that Flynn has been put in charge of the company when he comes to meet with them coming in on the helicopter. So I guess some things don't change. And that's fucking Tron. Tron. Right. Normally I'd you know, do the whole did you like it or not thing, but we already talked about that at the beginning. I mean, it's not it's Plus, not a horrible film, right? There's certainly... No, no. We've watched tons of worse shit than this, and, and this has a construction. Uh, if you don't think about it too much, it goes point A to point B to point C. Pretty linear. Yeah. It's, you know, I mean, it's... 
It, it's inoffensive. I, I, I just don't particularly care it's for it. It's just slow. No, no, it's not a bad film. But yeah, very slow. And, and very slow. And like I said, restricted by its own ambition because there's just not a lot they could do with what they were working with. But they wanted to work with that because it was ambitious. And, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll level with you. They can do all of the things that they want to do in 2010 when they make Tron Legacy. So... Well, yeah, yeah, good point. Um, not that I've seen it yet. And it's and it's not... I don't think it's a terrible film either. I think it's, it's an appropriate sequel to Tron, ultimately. <laughs> uh, <coughs> but we'll get to... But we'll talk about that we'll another time. We'll get to that time. another time. Yeah. I think the... Yeah. There's something else that I I sort of we I sort of skipped past this scene a bit quickly that I did want to kind of talk about because I thought that it was sort of interesting and and prescient in its own way. There's a scene where Sark and the MCP are talking about uh, the users and how the users made us, and the MCP rejects that assertion. That assertion. Because no one user made him. And this is, I mean, this is what programs became. They started out as sort of intimate projects created by one individual. Video games at the time were almost all made by one person who did all of the things to code the game. And they made that. They, they made that game. And it was their thing. And yeah. and they were really personal art projects to some extent, and and that sort of imprimatur of of the designer, and and in some cases they would even you know the whole concept of Easter eggs is just an artist putting themselves putting their mark somewhere in a product that maybe wasn't ever intended to be theirs, belonged to someone else, and they still put their mark in. The, the, the classic yeah. uh, uh, initials Easter egg in Adventure, uh, of course, being a, a great example, and things like that. And, and, and the villain of this piece is, in a lot of ways, I think, the dehumanization of technology and, and the risks that we introduce when we take the human component out of it. So I, I think Tron is trying to say some things that are really, really interesting, particularly viewed in retrospect. And it's hard to say how much of it was intentionally predictive and how much of it is just sort of serendipitously accurate to where things have been going technologically. Uh, but I think that there is some value in it as having sort of predicted the direction that technology was going to go in the next 30 years. Um, so that's, I think there's a lot of merit to the film if you want to think about it philosophically, but its philosophy is so jumbled and confusing and, and overambitious that it can't explain itself. Uh, it can't. It, it wants to raise questions and never wants to deliver. I think much in the way of answers. So I like the video game bikes, <laughs> and the video game bikes are pretty cool. I like the the ring game a lot. I think that whole scene is really cool. Um, 
The solar sailor's yep. really lame. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, um, the I'm, I'm trying to wrap this up quickly just because um, it's getting more and more painful just to sit. Okay, well, then let's talk about what um, we're doing next time. So next time we are doing, God help us all, Blood Rain 2. Oof. The next Blood Rain. Look for the one that's set in cowboy times. <laughs> God, what? Yeah. Oh, that would I, be I, good. I'm trying to remember if it's just called Blood Rain 2. Let me... Uh, hang on. Blood Rain movie sequel. I want to double check just to make sure we've got the right information. There we are. It's got a subtitle. Blood Rain 2 Deliverance. Okay. There's an original subtitle it's, for you. It's Deliverance. It's yep. Old West styled. Yep. Uva Bowl's take on a classic cowboy romp. And I guess he with, figured with he could get away with this because they did the high fantasy one first instead of doing the Nazi one first. Oh, exactly. that cunning motherfucker. <laughs> this was his plan the whole time. He just wanted to make a cowboy vampire movie, which I, I think so. I am not opposed to on principle. One of my favorite vampire movies, um, just from a weird B cult movie perspective is Sundown, The Vampire in Retreat, which uh, I may have mentioned before on podcasts somewhere. I know I talked to, to you about it before. It has Bruce Campbell in it as a fresh-faced Van Helsing. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really good, and it's, it's sort of a... Not, I, don't know, I hesitate to call it a Western because it's more of a ghost town story, but uh, interesting film. Uh, so I like that vibe. I could get into this if it, you know. Yeah, I've seen it. I expect it. I expect. I have. I have an expectation of what Bowl is capable of, and so I think I'm prepared to see something well, fucking weird. It's it's got some Bowl mainstays in it. It's got uh, Zach Ward in it. It's got Brenton Fletcher. Oh, in it. that's so, wonderful. That's wonderful. Uh, Zach Ward playing a particularly interesting take on a character. So. That'll be next time, Blood Rain 2 Deliverance. Until then, um, you can catch Conrad Zimmerman at Conrad Zimmerman on Twitter. Um, We also do another podcast together, Fist Shark Marketing. You can check that out at fistshark.com and you can look up Fist Shark Marketing on iTunes or RS, you know, wherever you get your your podcasts and whatnot. And that'll be that. We'll see you in another fortnight for Blood Rain 2 Deliverance. Goodbye.